So I showed it to the doctor, and well, she said it's smashing. episode of the smashing podcast we're talking about react performance what factors slow our react apps down and how can we fix it we talked to expert ivan akulov to find out but first did you know that smashing magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week there's a lot to keep up with but we're here to help it's your weekly update second part of a guide to undoing mistakes with Git, Tobias Gunther reminds us that no matter how experienced we are, mistakes are an inevitable part of software development, but we can learn to repair them. And this two-part series shows us exactly how to undo our mistakes using Git. Carrie Fisher looks at accessible SVGs, perfect patterns for screen reader users. Discover which SVG patterns we should avoid and which patterns are the most inclusive when comparing different combinations of operating systems, browsers, and screen readers in this handy article. In a post sponsored by Editor X, we learn how to build and launch powerful responsive websites with Editor X from Miroslav Bekirov. While web builders have been around for a long time, it wasn't until recently they became practical for professional use. Closing the gap between design and code has become the North Star for many companies, and we're seeing a wave of tools that deliver on this promise. Find out about one such product, Editor X. Cosima Milka walks us through useful VS Code extensions for front-end developers. VS Code has quickly taken over as the IDE of choice for many of us working in the front-end. Take a tour of some of the little helpers to minimize slowdowns and frustrations and boost front-end workflow along the way. And in adding a commenting system to a WYSIWYG editor, Shalab Avias follows up his article on building a rich text editor by adding a commenting system that enables users to select text inside a document and share their comments on it. He brings in Recoil.js for state management, and all the code for the system he builds is, of course, available on GitHub. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He's a Google developer expert, full-stack software engineer, and a performance consultant. And he's the founder of web performance agency, Perf, Perf, Perf. He spends much of his time elbow deep in JavaScript and is a contributor to different open source projects, often with a performance focus. So we know he knows his stuff when it comes to web performance. But did you know he once rescued a panda from a rooftop using only a pogo stick? My smashing friends, please welcome Ivan Akulov. Hi, Ivan. How are you? I'm smashing it. Thank you. So I wanted to talk to you today about web performance because that's your professional focus and your area of expertise, Um, but in particular about performance with React. Um, How much of your work involves working with reactive frameworks such as as React? Is it something that's becoming a lot more common? Um, Yeah, so I think it's 50-50. I think like half of my work is dedicated to helping clients with loading performance and another half of my work is dedicated to helping clients with React runtime performance. Is it increasing? That is that balance increasing? Is is do we are you seeing more clients adopting React over traditional methods or over other frameworks? Um, well, uh, to be honest, it's hard to compare. It's hard to compare React with other 
so uh, there are two ways to answer this question. The first one is whether React is getting more popular than I know, like traditional, uh, like I know JavaScript libraries, jQuery, etc. That's definitely true. That's been going on for a while. And another one is whether React, uh, like whether React grows or falls compared to Vue and other frameworks. To be honest, I know it's really hard to judge from my corner. <laughs> um, so what I know is that I'm uh, React. React definitely seems to be most popular framework. Although, although I have a few friends from different parts of the world, and this is actually not true for different geographies. For example, in Georgia, which is the country, not the U.S. state, um, as far as I remember, most of the local developers use Angular, and that's fairly fairly interesting. Like I came. I came to do a React talk there once, and uh, like the, the folks who were organizing the event told me that it would be harder to find attendees because the React is not so popular there. That's really interesting. Um, so if if someone was to come to you and say, hey, Ivan, you're a handsome man, why is my React app slow? Where would you start to look? Are there, are there main sorts of problems that developers run across when it comes to React? Yeah, when a developer comes to me and asks, like, "Hey, my my app is slow. How like why is it happening? How can we improve it?" So my first my first step would be to obviously reproduce that locally. And when I reproduce that locally, I would record a Chrome DevTools performance profile and React performance React DevTools performance profile. So that mean that would be my two primary primary tools. So uh, you mentioned um, React profiling tools. Do- what do those tools tell you? Do they tell you, like, for example, which components uh, are being slow inside your app? Yeah, well, uh, so my first step would be to look into the React tools, into the React tools. So React tools have two tabs. They have the, like, the components tree tab, which shows you all the components that you have in the app, um, obviously. And there's also a tab called Profiler, which lets you record the profile of how your app renders, like how many time it renders, times it renders, how many, um, which components take the most time out of uh, each render. So my my first step would be to uh, reproduce the tissue that the developer came to me with. Uh, Record a a profiling session of it using React React Profiler. And then look into what exactly is happening there. And there are, like, uh, typically, there are two primary issues that are making this law, like two two of hanging fruits that you would focus on first. The first one is components that are, that are taking too much time rendering, and that that may be for multiple reasons. Perhaps there perhaps there's just a single component that's doing something expensive. Like I know, um, I had one client who, oh, it's basically the client that that was a static site, and they were that that was a static site rendered with React, and what they were doing, they were loading articles from the server in the markdown in the markdown format. And then they were parsing that markdown into HTML. They were converting that markdown into the HTML on the client. And because articles were large, that were taking like a few hundred milliseconds. So that was uh, so that single component of parsing articles was taking a few hundred milliseconds to render. So that's one example. And or apart apart from a single component being slow, there could be just I know subtrace of components rendering necessarily and that being a bottleneck. Another thing that happens is cascading renders. That's when uh, you're doing a single action in the app and that schedules a few renders one after another. So there again might be a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, there are a lot of ways that could happen, but yep, that's 
another thing I would look into, and I would try to reduce the number of renders, remove, remove unnecessary renders uh, scheduled by, by React. Are there things you can do in the design of a of an app or the design of a, a, a sort of page in traditional terms um, to make sure that you're not running into these sorts of performance problems? In the design, you mean the UI UX, right? Yeah, in the, in the user interface. Are there... Are there sort of common traps that it's easy to fall into that would that would make a, a page, you know, might, might cause unnecessary um, uh, re-renders or, or things like that? To be honest, I'm not sure. can't think of anything right now. I had an, an issue not in, in React, but uh, but in Vue. Um, I'm a rec- recovering React engineer. Um, I work mostly in Vue now. And I've um, dealt with some pages where uh, had big lists of data and each line in the listing was a, a component that was being rendered. And this page might be a thousand items long in some cases. And so you get that, that component, you know, one component rendering a thousand times in situations like that. Are, are there ways that you can architect it differently so that that's not a problem? Right. Yeah. Uh, there are definitely ways to solve that. So, um, a canonical solution for this, when you have like a table with a th- like, a huge number of rows of columns, or at least with a huge number of rows, is virtualization, which is basically you take a library like RectWind or Rect Virtualized and you wrap the list with it. And what the library does is it uses an intersection, the intersection observer API to find which components are off-screen, which components are on-screen, and it renders only the components that are on-screen. So this, if you have if you have a list of say thousand thousand items, but you like at any given moment you could only see ten items, then um the library would show you would would make sure that only ten of these right items are rendered into the DOM. So you get so you get a significantly smaller DOM tree, which helps with stellar calculations, which helps with uh layout calculations with a bunch of other stuff. And you also get smaller React component tree, which helps with reactor computer reactor conciliation and similar stuff. Another API for this, which works a bit differently, but which is perhaps more convenient, is the recently introduced content visibility API. So this is a CSS property that was added into browsers, I think half a year into Chrome half a year or a year ago. And so what it does, it basically does the same thing that these libraries do. However, what it does in practice is that uh, it makes sure that the off-screen nets are not rendered. So the browser like skips them, skips them and rendering completely. And um, this also helps to reduce the rendering cost significantly. So this is not going to help to reduce the React rendering cost. Uh, so like React would still reconcile the whole tree and uh, Render all all thousand nodes, all thousand components. But if your expensive part lies in in the browser rendering and not in the direct rendering, then that's that's going to help. That sounds promising, and that's a, a native browser API, isn't it? Rather than part of React. Yes, yes, exactly. So it's it's single CSS properties. Actually, two two C, two CSS properties. So. Um, yeah, the first the first property is called literally content visibility, and the second one, I think. Um, content intrinsic height or content intrinsic width, so two two properties. Um, so the the complex part, the complex thing about, or actually the challenging thing about both content visibility and about virtualization is that you can't really 
do that if your list items have dynamic height or dynamic width, if that's a horizontal list. Or actually, you can't do that. The browser can't know the height and the width of an element unless it renders it, either in the virtualization approach or in the content visibility approach. So the problem is that if you have items with a varying widths or varying height and you don't know their heights for sure, then virtualizing them is going to be hard because the scroll bar would be jumping all the time while you're scrolling that list. Because the browser would be rendering these elements, learning the suites, and readjusting the page height. So that's that, that's a challenge. That that always is a, a, a classic challenge with uh, with laying things out on the web, isn't it? Knowing uh, knowing their heights, what their heights are before they've rendered, even down to images and and things like that. Yeah. Um, w- one of the key differences uh, building on a, a framework like React um, compared with just you know building HTML and CSS sort of uh, standard server side rendered pages um, is you sort of have this balancing act of uh, the loading performance versus the runtime performance is is there a way you know should one is one of those more important than the other should you optimize um, for a site being performant once it's done its initial load um, or is loading priority more important to stop visitors going away before it and things even loaded or, or do, is it a balance of the two? So it really depends. My opinion is that it really depends on what kind of thing you're doing. If you're a static site or if you're if you're a site or an app that or whatever, something that needs to optimize for say SEO or showing ads and ad ranking and ad cost, then loading performance is going to be more important too because that's what search ranking is based on. That's what ad costs are based on. And if you're doing stuff like so, if you're if you're a complex single page app which users come to and like do some stuff for a while, like I know you're some you're some graphics editor, you're some whatever you you do some complex stuff with JavaScript, then time performance is perhaps uh, much more important because that's so that's that's actually much harder to measure. The effect of that is much harder to measure. But um, I believe that. Runtime performance is much more important here because that's what users because that's what affects affects the overall user satisfaction. And if you are slow, then users are going to leave the app to competitors and are going to complain to you. Actually, that's one way to measure that. With single page applications, is there a meaningful way that we can assess performance? across the different parts of the app. So like, say, this part of our app is slow or that part of our app is slow and, and this part is fine. I mean, traditionally, we look at uh, sort of pages to see how they perform. But in a single page app, you're, what you're loading in isn't just one page. It's actually a, you're scaffolding an entire framework um, to, to get to that initial render. So is there a good way to approach measuring performance across an entire app? That's a good question. So, so there are a few ways to approach that. So the first way is the uh, the simplest one, but it would probably it, it's often not for what you're looking for. So one thing that you could do is you could use the uh, built-in browser API to collect uh, Chrome Vitals data and um, so collect that data and save it somewhere, store it like in Google Analytics or another storage and uh, basically aggregate the data and look at your uh, first input delay, your 
cumulative layout shift across the whole time the app was rendered, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that's that's a very high level review, and it's perhaps not going to be uh, what what you're looking for. So, if I was doing that, what I would probably do is I would focus on the specifics of of my app. So let's say my app is, I know, some text editor. Then what really matters to me, there, there are a few user metrics that really matter to me. It's input latency. Like the faster the faster the text is rendered after I press a key, then the better is the performance. There are perhaps a few other metrics like switching between different menus or applying formatting like bold or italic or etc. So what I would do in this case is I would try to measure the duration of each of these interactions. So try to measure the duration of I would try to measure the input latency, the duration of or render renders between between I press the key and between the key appears on the screen, duration of like applying the bold styling and etc. And I would try to collect these metrics in any real user monitoring software and I would look at that to figure out whether I'm fast or slow, or rather whether I'm getting faster or I'm getting slower. So it's more a case of uh, measuring the things that your users are perhaps interacting with rather than looking at a page and say, how, how fast is this page? Because that doesn't really make any sense when you've got a more interactive interface. Yeah, exactly. So I've heard, I've heard multiple times that for some complex apps, uh, loading time is actually not a concern because users are used to, like when you're opening the Photoshop, you're used that Photoshop is taking a while to load. You're used to seeing that loading placeholder. So it's it's totally not an issue when you're opening, say, like uh, Google, okay, Google Sheets is not the right example, but okay, any online drawing, say, any web draw, drawing software. And it's, Again, yeah, it takes a while to load. That's fine. That's fine as long as it actually works works quickly after that. So if it takes a while to load, but it works quickly after that, then users are actually not going to complain because they're used to this behavior. You mentioned um, input delay as, as you're typing. I, I saw a tweet storm of yours where you went into the subject of, of components that seem to react too slowly, like typing in a text field and, and the letters taking time to appear. Um, that's obviously a, a performance issue because... On a regular web page, typing in a um, in a in a text field is instantaneous. So, what causes those sorts of slowdowns? Just like with the generic React performance, there are a lot of things that could cause that. So, what typically is happening when you're typing in a text field and it takes a while to like render that key that you've just pressed is that you're running a lot of you're running too much JavaScript when you're handling that event and. Um, there could be multiple reasons for that. Like you could be rendering too many components. You could be perhaps you're pressing. So perhaps you're pressing the key, at, and that saves saves the text input state in the React in in the Redux store, and that causes the whole app to render because um, I know that invalidates a large a large part of that Redux store. Or perhaps you are scheduling a few renders one after another. Or perhaps there's some third-party library that's taking a while to uh, recompute something. Or so um, there's really there's no there's no unique answer. So actually, rendering performance is really challenging to me, and I think in general in this in this part because so loading performance is way easier to uh, profile, it's way easier to analyze, it's way easier to measure. 
And uh, I think we actually see the effect of that in that there's way more content about loading performance, way more tools for for loading performance. It's way easier to measure and profile in that it's pretty much identical for every application. So no matter what application is, no matter what it's written in, no matter what kind of stuff it does, they all load more or less the same way. So when whatever the application is, you could always focus on the same things and you could teach people the same things and that would be all right. Whereas with runtime performance, the specifics of, of the slowdowns, the specific of runtime challenges are super different with every app. Like they could be atomized to some basic stuff, but uh, it's super hard to talk about them on the higher level because uh, with every app there, they're different with every single app. So actually one of my challenges that I'm hoping to solve with the workshop that I'm doing is to give some kind of high level enough introduction to runtime performance so that people who attend this workshop can learn that it can apply that to their applications with their specific challenges and with their specific business logic. If there's... uh things that you need to be particularly uh, interactive and respond very quickly in terms of rendering, say, to take our example again of typing in a text field. And there is other work to be done uh, that's unavoidable. Is there a way of prioritizing one over the other in React? Can you say, you know, I need to do this render, and then once that's finished, now we do all this updating of state, and is that possible? Sure. Yeah. So, well, React. There, there are again a few ways to do that. The first one is uh, the one React React has been working on for a while, which is, which is the concurrent mode and prioritiz- prioritizing uh, stuff that happens on the screen compared to stuff that happens off the screen, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I'll be honest. I don't have much knowledge about it yet, um, mostly because it hasn't stabilized. And so, it's it's nice to know about that. And I enjoy reading about it, but I don't think it makes sense to teach about it yet because that's not something that you could take and uh, apply right now. Plus, it it could change a lot before before it's released to, to the public. Uh, so when React eventually releases the the concurrent mods and the whole prioritization thing, then that's going to be that, that's likely going to be the universal answer, or like one one of the best answers until that what we could do is we could delay delay the computations by doing some throttling or bouncing or moving i know moving expensive computations to web workers or if the expensive work is caused by not by javascript but 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 by uh like recomputing styles and recomputing layout which is actually a super common problem in some apps when you're manipulating with the dom and uh, it ends up causing faster calculations than perhaps optimizing these these issues. So yeah, if we have a text editor and we need to make sure it, we are typing into it quickly, what I would do is I would try to run as few code as possible in every key press and everything that could be delayed, try to delay it by uh, a few hundred milliseconds or perhaps a couple seconds to make sure it only runs when the user has finished typing. So that's like a high level overview. And again, specifics really depend on the app. So there could be better architectural solutions, but that's what I would start with, or that's what I look into first. 
of course, uh, with every bit of JavaScript we add to um, to an app, there's the potential for it to get slower and slower and slower. Um, is is there any way to claw that back? Um, it, like, is it possible for uh, a React app to have like a perfect lighthouse score, for example? Yeah, so that was actually something. Um, yeah, getting back to the text edge, one thing that I forget to mention is that if there's a component that's, if there's a single isolated component which has performance of which is super critical and we can't make it fast with React, then one thing that I would perhaps try doing is making it work without React at all. So making it work with direct DOM manipulation and uh, plain plain JavaScript and stuff like that. So the reason for that is that while while React is great in terms of maintainability, like the reason we've switched from jQuery to React was that React allows us to write a code that's much more maintainable, much easier to support. It's also way easier to introduce to accidentally introduce major performance bottlenecks with React. Like you could accidentally render the whole app, or you could accidentally have a component that renders uh, fairly frequently. It does some expensive stuff. So if you switch, if you switch that specific component to plain JavaScript, then the chance of it accidentally getting slow would be way lower. Getting back to the to Lighthouse store, that's actually the approach I've taken with uh, the thirdperf.com site. So uh, I, I ran from a consulting agency and it has its own site. And uh, so historically, I've created that site in Gatsby because, um, I guess, simply because I wanted to try that stack and it seemed nice. Um, so I did that and it worked really well in general, apart from one thing, which is the Lighthouse core. So I built this site with Gatsby, I deployed it to Netlify, and that ensured that the site loads quickly, renders quickly. But the Lighthouse, the Lighthouse core was bad due to time to interactive and total blocking time metrics, because so while the site was rendering quickly, it was loading a huge JavaScript bundle after that, and that JavaScript bundle was executing and taking a while to execute, taking a while to render the same page that the user has already seen. So one thing I did was I threw away all the JavaScript that my site was using. That was, in my case, that was fairly easy to do because there was almost no JavaScript. There were only a few interactive elements and I replaced them with online scripts. And that worked great. So I disabled on the JavaScript. There are Gatsby plugins for that, like Gatsby plugin, no JavaScript. And that was one of the most significant wins in terms of loading points. So I think my Lighthouse score jumped from 60-something to 90-something thanks to this single case. And actually, I have a friend called Andrei Sitnik. He's a front-end engineer. He's uh, fairly known in the uh, Russian front-end community. And Andre is known for the fact that he's, he's heavily advocating for using React less, which is so basically <laughs> whenever you open Twitter and whenever you see some conversation about React being slow, uh, you could frequently see him mentioning that, hey, you don't need React at this site at all because this is a static site. Why are you using React here? Just use some good old web technologies and it would be way faster. Uh, because you don't you don't need because you don't need React on the client, and I would say I agree with him. You there are there are a lot of cases where React is convenient for development experience, 
And I would totally support using it for... There are a lot of cases, including static sites, where React is convenient for development experience. But that doesn't mean it needs to be served to the users. So one way, one thing that you could do is use React on the server, use it as a template engine, basically, but don't serve it to the client. And that would be, if you can do that, then that would be one of the greatest loading performance things you could do. So your top tip for performance is to get rid of all the JavaScript. Uh, top tip for the React workshop, get rid of React, yes. <laughs> um, one of the things you, you hear with uh, people adopting a framework like React is that it can be done for performance reasons. Um, like it's it's much easier to build an asynchronous experience and get uh, faster sort of perceived performance if you have a, a powerful framework managing your state rather than relying on a, a server rendered page, for example, to um, to compile a, a complete page all at once. You can load in a framework and then asynchronously populate it. Um, on the other side, you have you know people who are, who are put out warnings that and that their experiences are that a big React app can be really slow and uh, can be really harmful to performance. So I guess like with all things, it's probably, it depends what you're doing. But going into it, can you, is there a way to judge whether your use is going to be good for performance or bad for performance? So that's, that's a good question. To be honest, I haven't heard of cases. So perhaps that might be totally perhaps my... Uh, my view is skewed because I'm typically working with slow apps, not with fast apps. So, but I'd be honest. I'd be honest. I haven't heard of cases where people would be switching to React because it's faster than the original uh, approach. So, it uh, people are definitely switching because it's more convenient development wise, or because it's easier to write maintainable code, or because the ecosystem is larger, or something like that. But I haven't heard of cases switching to because it's faster. Actually, the this bit was a thing that was heavily promoted back when React was created, like the whole virtual DOM thing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But React. A few years after that motto was introduced, React ditched it because they reoriented themselves on the development experience. I think so. Okay, I'm not. Sure. I'm, not I'm not actually sure what they reoriented <laughs> themselves with, but I, I remember that it was like a pretty concrete thing that they ditched that motto because it was not people what it was not what people were buying React for anymore. Likely React is always going to be a bit slower than the uh, traditional technique, but it comes with lots of upsides as well in terms of developer experience and maintainable code. I think, yes. And you know, so Jeff Edward has a great article that is called, I think, uh, Pit of Success or something like that. And in that article, he mentions that programming languages and ecosystems have a, have a term of a pit of success. Like, for example, C++, has a bit of success of, or rather a bit of despair of uh, memory issues. So whenever you're writing a code in C++, it's super easy to write some code that does some direct memory access and in the end it drops introducing some bugs or vulnerabilities or whatever. So you have to keep thinking, you have to constantly keep thinking to make sure you are not writing the code that introduces memory issue that introduces memory bugs. 
I think with JavaScript, the similar pits of success are the pits of despair. So JavaScript has, JavaScript and the React system has a lot of benefits. And again, it's maintainability, it's everything we've talked about. But I think a pit of despair, that's a trap that's too easy to fall into unless you're actively thinking and unless you're actively preventing yourself from falling into it, is making an app that's slow, either in terms of loading performance, because it's too easy to install some NPM dependency and import it into the bundle, and then it, it ends up adding 200 kilobytes, 125 kilobytes to a bundle, or in terms of runtime performance, because it's too easy to create a component that would render every time and be running way, way too many codes or whatever. Um, I came across your work first uh, about a year ago when you posted a case study analyzing the performance of a Notion page. Um, I think we all love Notion and there's probably not one person who doesn't wish it was faster. Um, and I, I don't think this, was, this wasn't this was paid work, was it? This was just a, an educational exercise? Yeah, there was like occasionally when I have time for it, I try to do case studies for some popular sites. I tremendously enjoy doing that. And I think it also it's also a great educational material for whoever finds it useful. And is that the sort of process that you follow when beginning an assessment of any sort of um, app's performance? Does is the the case study with Notion does that follow the same sort of process that you would follow um, for anything? Yeah. So the high level thought process is that you identify an issue. So you you reproduce an issue locally. In case of Notion, that was it was the Notion page taking taking a while to load, and then you profile that with all the tools you have and try to find any low hanging fruits or not so low hanging fruits. Try to figure out how to cut cut off these fruits. So that's the high level review. There are a lot of specifics. It was a, a very fascinating uh, read, and I'll, I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes so that uh, people can go and look at it if they've not seen it. Um, I, I saw that you uh, you mentioned that React 17 uh, removed one of your favorite performance features last year. Um, what, what was that about? React has went through a few generations of performance features, like React 15, I think up to 15.5, had a built-in perf object which provided which gave you a way to measure like the most expensive components or like components that aren't necessarily so. You could have written in the console something like perf dots. Um, I don't remember the concrete API. It was like measure, measure, measure something. But uh, yes, the idea was that uh, that was fairly convenient for detecting which components rendered unnecessarily, with a scene which components rendered, but this but the resulting DOM tree was identical to the previous DOM tree. But then React removed that. I don't know why. I wasn't actively doing performance back then. Um, so React removed that. So I think they also introduced React Profiler back then, but also at some point they introduced a different API, which was user timing. So the idea was that whenever you are running a development version of React and you are recording a performance trace with the Chrome DevTools performance tab, so what React would do is it would measure, it would mark the beginning and the end of each component when when each component renders and when each component's effects run, like component did mount, component update. Uh, so it would measure the beginning and the end of each of these components and its lifecycle hooks. And it would put, put them into the performance recording using the user timing API. 
So this was super convenient for debugging because because when you record a performance recording of uh, I know a single render of or whatever, and you open the main thread pane and you look into it into it, what you would see is you would see a lot of React internal code, like it's fiber algorithm working on the components, uh, calling calling every component, and it would be super hard to identify where each component's rendering starts, where each component rendering ends. But if you scroll a bit higher and open the user timing session, that you would be you would be able to see that straight ahead, and you would be able to match what's happening in the user timing scene, which component is rendering right here, to what's happening in the performance pane. And so, if you see if you see some I know expensive stellar calculation in the performance pane, you would be able to just scroll scroll a bit higher and see that hey, this matches like this specific component or this specific I know component did mount or actually. So this was super convenient for debugging like particular performance issues. Uh, However, the problem with this was that for React developers, it was fairly hard to maintain. There was uh, like a GitHub discussion with with the description, with with the particular reasoning. So what React ended up doing is they was they removed this API in React 17, removed this feature in React 17. So right now in React 17, the only way to debug uh, React performance is to use the React profiler. And while this works great for a lot of things, there are a few use cases like seeing lifecycle hooks, which a React profiler doesn't measure, or matching, I know, uh, figuring out why a specific component takes a while to render, which again, so React profiler shows you that this specific component takes 30 or 300 milliseconds to render, but it doesn't show why, and to figure out why you have to switch back to the performance pane. So with user timings, that was easy to match a specific component to what's happening inside of that component. And with without user timing, with just direct profiler, that's actually harder. So yeah, I'm it's a pity it gets removed. Uh, how how are things looking for the future of performance with React? Do you know of any features and changes that are coming that might help? Yeah, there are a lot there are Two things that I'm looking forward to. Uh, I think the one is the concurrent mode, which um, lets you render, which lets, which lets React prioritize some stuff over another stuff, and um, I think defer what's happening off the screen. I haven't been really following its development. I know that it's mostly close to clauses, and like it could take another year, perhaps, but it's fairly close to getting released. Um, and another thing is the recently introduced thing, which is React Server Components, and that's actually that's actually the thing I'm really looking forward forward to. So there are two areas where React apps may be slow. The one is the runtime performance, and the other is loading performance. And loading performance is not only about like the huge bundle and etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, which everyone is talking about, but it is also about the bundle execution and more importantly the React hydration process. So whenever you have a React app that's server-side rendered and you serve that page to the client and then load React, serve React to that page, what React does is it gets through the hydration process. It gets all the DOM nodes that have been already rendered. It uh, reconstructs the virtual DOM tree and it reattaches this, like, or it restores the relationship between its virtual DOM and the actual DOM nodes. So... 
the problem here with the problem with this process is that this is a single most expensive process during page loading. So if you're loading a page and that page runs a few chunks of JavaScript, then that chunk of JavaScript is going to be the most expensive. It could easily take a few hundred milliseconds or like a second on slower device. And this means that for the whole second or for the whole few hundred milliseconds, the page would not be responsive. So if the user tries to scroll it or interact with it during that time, then um, the page would just not respond at all. Yeah, hydration is typically one of the most expensive things. And it's hard to optimize it because React like needs to hydrate all these components. So one one thing that there are only a few things that you could do with that today. One thing is partial hydration, which is uh, if you have some pieces of this site or of the app that you don't need to rehydrate, which you, which can stay static, that you could write a bit of code around that and bail out these subtrees from rehydration. And if these subtrees are typically expensive, then not rehydrating them would save you a lot of time. But this is actually hard to do nowadays. There are a few libraries for that, but this is not a popular approach. It's hard to do. It's You could do that, but it requires it's, it typically requires writing your own code around, around the subtrees. So what server-rendered components are going to do is they are going to take partial hydration. They're, they're basically going to introduce partial hydration and a bunch of other benefits in the core. So Taking back that example that we've talked about earlier, like uh, a static site which uh, loads a huge pile of markdown from the server uh, and then converts it to HTML during hydration. So why, one way to avoid paying that cost is to turn that component that converts markdown into HTML into a server-rendered component and do this conversion on the server and serve the concrete HTML to the client. So, and that would save you like, a few hundred milliseconds if the markdown, if the markdown blob is large. So I'm really looking forward towards React server components. So they are going to be great for a lot of reasons, but also particularly for making hydration less expensive. That sounds uh, really good. Um, you've got a, a workshop coming up at the end of May with Smashing, um, and this being 2021, of course, it's all online. Um, it's called the React Performance Masterclass. Uh, what sort of things would an attendee expect to learn? My goal with this workshop is to take a few apps, a few examples of apps that have the same issues that I see in client apps over and over again and again, and to show attendees, to walk attendees through and to actually ask attendees to do the same optimizations through their apps, but also to guide attendees and to walk attendees through my mindset, through my process, which I apply to solving, to identifying and solving each of these specific problems. So we talk about issues like expensive renders, like when you have a component that takes a while to, to render, how to identify it, how to optimize it. We would talk about expensive effects like um, component dead mounts, if you use a glass component or use effects if you use functional components. We will talk about unnet server renders, what to do when you say click a button and that causes the whole app to render and uh, that makes the app slow. We will talk about cascading renders when you're uh, scheduling a few renders in a row. We would also talk about hydration and about layout thrashing and what to do with expensive layout and stellar calculations and how to identify them, how to fix them. And so that's the problems I'm planning to show. 
perhaps also something else if it fits. And well, we would talk about we would also talk about a bunch of solutions for that, starting from partial hydration, which is for hydration going through basic correct hooks and more advanced third-party libraries that help with optimizing NS server renders and making components render faster. We would walk through tools which help with detecting what specific color rendered, white rendered. And we would also talk through solutions like virtualization or content on the content visibility CSS uh, property or other stuff like the CSS contained property, which is uh, rarely used and not really known trick, but it helps with performance optimization. We would also look at solutions like virtualization and content visibility, the content visibility CSS property, and other stuff that helps with optimizing layout thrash and optimizing expensive style or calculations. So that's what, I'm, that's what I'm planning to talk about. But the primary focus would be on showing attendees the most common anti-partners, the most common issues that happen, and specific ways to identify them, to profile them, and to fix them. So that's my goal. So it sounds like that, yes, you're going to equip uh, attendees with everything they need to identify and fix their own performance problems, which sounds uh, which sounds really great. Um, so I've been learning all about React performance today. What have you been learning about lately, Ivan? One less interesting experience that I've been having lately is, uh, so I've been helping a client to optimize a large scantful paint for their site. And this is actually not about React runtime performance or React learning performance. That, like, they don't use React at uh, at all. But the challenge is that we've done pretty much everything we could have done with their site. Like uh, pretty much, pretty much all the we've plucked all pretty much all the low-hanging fruits. We've optimized everything that makes sense. The page is actually so large that uh, the browser renders it in steps. So like it renders, it parses it in steps. Like it parses a few hundred lines, then it renders these few hundred lines, then it parses the next few hundred lines and renders these few hundred lines. So it renders the header first, that it renders like some part of the main content first. Uh, after that, then it renders another part of the main content. So what this ends up doing is this uh, like chunked rendering ends up pushing the large scantful paint way higher than I would expect it to be if the browser rendered everything in one go. And I don't see any like typical reasons that I typically see in apps uh, that would like push that large scantful paint higher. Anyway, so what what I'm doing right now is I am going deep into Chrome internals and trying to figure out what exactly Chrome does when it's rendering that page and why exactly that like the chunked rendering is happening and what we can do to make sure it doesn't happen to make sure like the page renders in one go. So um, that's actually the like the recent learning experience for me. I just I just hope I don't need to compile Chromium from scratch. <laughs> Let's hope so. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Ivan, you can find him on Twitter, where he's at IamAkulov, and his personal website is IamAkulov.com. His agency, Perf, 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 can be found on the web at 3perf.com. And if you'd like to find out more about Ivan's workshop on React Performance, you can find all the information at smashingconf.com. Thanks for joining us today, Ivan. Do you have any parting words? Take care, be fast, and um, enjoy your life. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com 
on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Oh, 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 oh,